Hi everyone, welcome to Talking Good, where we explore thoughts, opinions, and experiences of people working in the philanthropic sector. I'm your host, Britt Hotailing, and today I am joined by none other than Elizabeth Marafino Fiola, a fundraising professional and current major gifts officer at Villanova University's Charles Widgers School of Law. Elizabeth, thank you so much for making some time to talk some good with me today. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's, it's exciting. So let's jump right in. What do you do currently? And does it reflect what initially drew you into the field of philanthropy? So yes, I, uh, I currently am a major gifts officer at Villanova University's Charles Widger School of Law, though I can raise money for other parts of uh, the university as well. Um, I'm mostly housed within the law school and talking to law alumni. But major gifts fundraising is what got me into the idea of getting into fundraising. So it's funny, I was a student at Villanova and I was taking the theater master's program. Uh, you could do it in conjunction with their master's of public administration. You could get a certificate in nonprofit management. And in that, I took a fundraising class with Robbie Healy and she is an all-star fundraiser. Uh, she's been all kinds of roles in the Association of Fundraising Professionals, both in Philadelphia and in Global. And she's currently on their ethics task force, but she teaches a fundraising course there still. and. I remember sitting there thinking, like I was at the time thinking I wanted to run a theater company. And I was like, oh, wow, this can really move the needle. Like this is a really good way to make your organizational organization sustainable and it can grow. And I'm like, I'm going to I'm going to do this. And then I could do like the artistic side of things on the side. But then that just kind of turned into fundraising. And so I worked in a number of organizations and I landed in major gifts after kind of doing a little bit of everything, because that is where you're going to see that needle really move. Every kind of fundraising is important, but if you want to see that transformational impact, and that's really exciting to be a part of, that's where you see it. And also just pr from a practical standpoint, that's where you get rewarded in terms of salary and all those kind of things. So, so there was definitely a practical, I have to pay my mortgage side of it. <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. You know, it makes me wonder, did you come from a philanthropic household? Were philanthropic and giving behaviors modeled for you? Oh, absolutely. My parents both. So the bigger story is my grandfather founded a theater company. At the time, it was for profit because it was in the 30s and they didn't do nonprofits the same way they do now. But when I was about eight, my mom turned it into a nonprofit. Um, and then she's always been very active on boards like the local symphony and um, the local flood museum. I'm from Johnstown, Pennsylvania. So we have the big famous flood. So, you know, being involved with the flood museum or being involved with different things to like preserve heritage. Like she was on a board that saved a bunch of old churches that all got like the parishes got consolidated, but the churches were still there. And so she was part of a group that reappropriated those churches for different things like creating theater spaces. And then my dad, he's been just very involved with his church. So yeah, I definitely had that modeled. And then also just with my mom turning the theater nonprofit, she hired a development director. So I've always kind of been around it. And then even when I was like, I think I was 15 or 16, we were doing a raffle. Someone donated a smart car and I had to try to convince people in the mountains of Pennsylvania to buy $100 raffle tickets for this smart car. So uh, I learned that that you have to know your audience. That probably wasn't the the best strategy, but it was it was it was a good learning experience. What was the primary lesson you pulled from that? From that, the fun, the smart car, uh, just that, again, know your audience, like people in the mountains who don't know electric cars are going to look at that and be like, that can't get over a mountain. So also, and I think a little bit of 
I mean, this wasn't my part of it, but probably saying no to the person who wanted to give us the car and say, hey, how about you just write us a check or maybe we can find something else to raffle off. But like that, too, is that other side of like when people want to help, you have to sometimes say no because you know that it's not going to use your resources wisely. It's interesting how much of philanthropy is knowing when to say no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. I wonder how that comes up for you when you're working with major gifts. Yes, especially. So the only spaces in which I've worked in major gifts have been schools. And so, so many times alumni may not be able to do a major gift, but they feel they can give back in other ways that we just can't support because we don't have time for that kind of volunteer management. Because before Villanova, I was at Williamson College of the Trades, but I've noticed it's a similar pattern. Like alumni are like, well, I want to give back in any way I can. And you have to figure out how to manage your your time and resource as well. And and I think like at Villanova, we have a really nice system of um, a mentorship program that so many alumni jump on board and we can pair up stu- like all of our students. If they want a mentor, we can get one. So it's really nice. And I know at Williamson, I think they were building that as well when I was there. I also noticed that you have a master's degree in theater as well as nonprofit management. I think there's a really interesting intersection between dramaturgical concepts and philanthropy, particularly with major gifts. And for our listeners that may not know, dramaturgy is effectively the study of dramatic composition and representation of main elements of drama on the stage. Do you think this is something that served you well in your work? Oh, absolutely. Because, um, you know, fundraising, there's a lot of storytelling in fundraising and um, the skills that you use in dramaturgy to like research and dig deep into the meaning behind things. You know, you learn how to ask the right kind of questions, like building a relationship with a donor is building their story in a lot of ways, both for you and your head and their own story in their head of how they want to see themselves in when they're giving back. And the dramaturgy in my mind is kind of sitting there with them and asking them those open-ended questions and kind of digging digging deeper into why they give and, and what kind of impact they want to make. One of my recurrent mantras is knowing the difference between the stories that we tell and the stories that tell us. And I wonder, what's your personal story of fundraising? Uh, how so? How do you interact with the act of giving? And would you say that, or would you summarize it as more of a philosophy of teaching others how to get involved with fundraising? Does that make sense? I guess like, I I think of it, that's making me think of the idea that like, I've always been taught that you're supposed to give back in some way. Um, That doesn't need to be money, but like we are always in service to each other. And, and I, you know, I have to put on this is my hat as an alum and as a staff member of Villanova is we are called to serve others. We are part of a community and we're all here to serve each other. Um, And so I guess that's my like approach to it is we all should be giving back. (laughs) If if that's a good answer. I don't know if that answered the question, but that's how I see it. That's great. You know, personal philosophy of fundraising can show up and many different ways for many different people or many different ways for the same person, depending on the day. Mm -hmm. Because there is such a broad interpretation of philanthropy, what your thoughts are on Robert Payton and Michael Moody's definition that they've put forward in their book, Understanding Philanthropy, as voluntary action for the public good. Would you define it similarly based on your experiences? 
Yeah, I was chewing on that. And again, I was coming back to that idea of service. Um, the voluntary is where I, I stick. I guess it is all voluntary, but that feels like such a clinical word. Because to me, it's just kind of this natural thing that we all should want to be in community with one another. And it, philanthropy is a way of expressing that. And it also brings up this idea that, you know, if, if philanthropy needs to be for the public good, then there's an implication that philanthropy can do harm. Mm. Yes. What do you think are the primary issues that we face in our field as far as addressing, you know, paternalism and other sort of patronizing ideas? I think the biggest challenge is kind of moving away from, and this might change with age because I know there's general trends with younger generations versus older generations of kind of what you're saying, that paternalistic quality. I think there's a movement towards like trust and I'm not meaning trust-based philanthropy, not like in the formal sense, but just this idea of like understanding that nonprofits have been doing this work. They know what they're doing and they don't, they need your resources and they can take some of your advice but like having now worked in nonprofits and seen all like the questions that we get asked all the time that take up so much I was a grant writer for a while and the you know there's always the question about like sustainability how are you going to be a sustainable organization and the answer is always like I'm going to keep coming to you for money like and other people like you for money um that's there's I think the pandemic and unfortunately we're I think we're moving a little bit back to what we were doing before, but the pandemic, it was great at the beginning when so many foundations were like, we're just dropping our requirements. Tell us what you need. Like that kind of thing, like building the relationship with these organizations, trusting they know how to do the work and giving them the resources they need. I think we are moving towards that in some ways, though I know there's a trend of like younger people want to do more hands-on stuff, but I think that might just be a symptom of when you're younger, you don't have as many resources financially. So you're like, well, I can do this, not that. So that might change as, as like millennial and Gen Z donors get older. We'll see. We'll have to see. I wonder what your perspective is because you've worked with much larger organizations than I have. My experience has primarily been grassroots. And I think it's so interesting that there is a certain hesitancy to participate in individual giving and working with donors one-on-one and asking people for money. But there's a real interest in writing grants. And I wonder if it's because the implication of a grant is that it's more like a contract. So you're Mm. not actually asking for a handout. If the organizational culture is really not excited about asking individuals for money, how would you coach the fundraiser that's working at that organization through that? Right. Well, I definitely think, because I have been like this, you know, writing a grant it is more formal process and so you don't and 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 you know that they're accepting applications because they're going to give out the money i think what you have to remind yourself is that when you ask someone for money like if you in a major gift capacity when you are asking them to take a meeting with you not just like a cold call you know hey give 20 dollars to your university if the person has said yes that already means they know why you're reaching out to them. Like as long as you were clear in the email, because I think early on I wasn't putting, I wasn't explaining my role in my, like my, my email. And so like I had a few people being like, Oh, I didn't realize this was about money. And I realized, Oh, Oh, right. I should. So I make it very clear. Like in the email, I am a major gift fundraiser. I want to tell you what I do. I'm, and then have it in my title, um, in my signature line. 
And that makes it easier because they wouldn't have said yes. And like, and I'm very lucky in that I work at a law school. People know why I'm calling them, especially lawyers. People come to lawyers all the time for money. So they're like, this is a gift officer <laughs> from an organization that I was a beneficiary of. So I absolutely know why we're having this conversation. And just rem- just reminding yourself that they're usually 99% of the time they're there because they know why they're there. And also just, you know, you don't make an impact unless you make the ask. Like it's, it's, that's, that's what I do is I always try to remind myself, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking them to make a change in the world in a way that, you know, means something to them. And that's a really great point that you bring up about donor centricity at the heart of the ask. And I wonder what you make of this concept, relatively new concept of mission-centered fundraising, which takes elements of donor-centric and community-centric, but takes the emphasis off of external influences as far as the mission goes and brings everything back to the mission. So the community at large and donors and funders are all treated as partners in achieving the same goal in the language that we use versus kind of portraying the donor as a specific type of hero. What are your thoughts on that? I really like that because again, I'm at Villanova and I was a Villanovan and we are all about how do we like unitas community is one of our, our core values. And we are always taught that that's what we're supposed to be doing is we are all coming together to fulfill this mission. So that resonates with me. And I, yeah, the the donor hero story, a lot of the donors I talk to, many of them don't feel that way. I mean, you still find people like that, but a lot of people feel embarrassed to see themselves that way. Like they'll put their name on something, but usually they'll tell me, oh, well, that's only because like I know that'll encourage others to give, not because I care about my name on it. And maybe they're being modest, but I, it seems very genuine to me that they're there because they want to see the impact. And I even asked, so the Dean of the college I work for, I asked him, you know, when you sit around with your board of consultants, like what's the one thing that makes them lean forward? And he said, the students. And th- again, like that's, I think that's what you're saying. Cause I actually hadn't heard the term, the mission driven um, versus community. I think that speaks to it too, is like, and I'm I'm a little fortunate, both that like my last job and here is again, I'm working with the people who went through the program and are giving back because it had such an impact on them. So it's it's neat because I, I had been in organizations before where that wasn't the case and it was still good work. It just wasn't it's just a different energy. <laughs> I wonder, because you do work in advancement and you work with a school, something that's been a really big push for a lot of organizations, not just academia, is this idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And in my experience, our field tends to not be very diverse. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that and what you think would help bring that level of diversity into fundraising. Well, I think we have to remind ourselves that's not all on us. Some of it is about addressing systemic inequalities in society. But it's also inviting people to the table who aren't traditionally thought of as philanthropists, um, whether that's a minoritized group or, you know, what whatever you want to use to define define that. And also like having people at your boards who are the people with the lived experience, maybe someone who came out of one of your programs where, they're, again, they're not going to give a financial commitment necessarily or they might give it like the level they can give, which historically is not considered like, you know, what a board member should give. We need to change the definitions of that 
and kind of level the playing field of, of who has access to that power. I think, um, I think it's something that is happening it, and it's takes constant, like reminding ourselves that, Oh, we need to make sure I, there's a seat at the table. We have, I work for at Villanova. There's an Institute that helps um, people who are survivors of sex trafficking mm-hmm. and, one of the things is on her advice, the director's advisory board is that she has a couple survivor leaders on her board for that exact purpose is how do we get their perspective there? And I think that's something if we're constantly checking ourselves in that way, that'll that over time is going to change. And I also do think we need to do more to mentor younger people of color and women and well I don't know about women for philanthropy because there's a lot of women in philanthropy I think we've figured that one out but um you know any kind of minoritized group you know those of us as we are moving up in the ranks wherever we are looking back to those who are coming behind us and saying who can I lift up and you know how do I make space for these kind of things as I gain more power, you know? So I come from a background in human services. So a lot of my work and its intersection with diversity and inclusion of beneficiaries and in feedback avenues and things like that, that takes on a very clear picture for me, right? So once at one point, once upon a time, I worked for a homeless shelter. That means how do we get members of the unhoused community? How do we get them involved in our organization? How do we make sure that we're meeting their needs in a way that makes sense to the community that we're serving? And I wonder how does that translate that same, that similar concept of involving beneficiaries? How does that translate to advancement? Oh, like higher. Yeah. Um, I've got you. Um, I'm still like getting used to advancement as a concept because I was always in development and these terms always are so squishy. I would say, you know, historically in the history of universities, it, you know, more wealthy, more elite people, more people with power, more people with privilege have more access to that. So I think in involving beneficiaries, you try to make outreach to the people who may have also gone through the school and try to include them, but they aren't in those categories. And showing there was a really powerful TED talk, there was a villain of a TEDx conference and a woman was speaking. She now is on staff and she was a student and she was talking about how she was down the shore, which is what we say when we say go to New Jersey for those who are not New Jersey or Philadelphia people. And she was wearing her Villanova cap and this man came up to her who was more of your standard guy who would go to college, a upper middle class white guy. And he started questioning whether or not she had gone to Villanova. Meanwhile, she had had this deep, deep history with Villanova. Like her, I think she said her father or her grandfather had like founded a vice provost office or something like that. I didn't, I don't remember exactly the details. So sorry if you're out there listening, but she had had like a deep history with the school, but because of perceptions. So I think it's, it's involving people like her. Now she works for the university and she's a wonderful member of the community. And it's about saying that these voices have always been here and making sure that we're pointing that out. Thanks for sharing that with me. I I want to dovetail off of the comment you made about some of the definitions being a little squishy. That is a mm-hmm. perfect way to sum up our sector right now. You know, we have these different connotations between philanthropy, which tends to mean basically a lot of money, wealth distribution, or long-term strategic planning, and charity, which is in our culture generally seen as an insult or Mm -hmm. a band-aid, a one-off, you know, relief from some horrible amount of suffering that's happening. And I wonder, what what word would you use to define works of good that isn't 
exclusionary to some degree. Oh, goodness. Uh, <laughs> I guess I'm going to go back to that service to others. I, you know, that always resonates with me. It takes a village kind of approach. And that's what, you know, thinking, I think using a term like that, people understand that you're not just bringing your financial resources or your physical resources. You might be bringing other kind of talents to the table or other other intangible resources. And speaking of intangible resources, I'm sure you've heard this old adage that you can't pour from an empty cup or, you know, you have to put your mask on first. Basically, all these different sayings saying that we have to take care of ourselves and be generous to ourselves first before we can help others. And I wonder if this idea of philanthropy starts at home, how does that show up for you? How do you make sure that your cup stays filled? Because our field is very full of compassion fatigue and burnout and turnover. Oh boy, I think about this a lot because I'm somebody who I'm working on undoing a lot of this, but, you know, have very tense muscles all over my body. I get migraines. I have the TMJ soreness all the time. And I think that's important is like there was a really great book I read called The Body Keeps the Score, which is all about that. It's a very intense book. So if warning anyone out there who wants to check it out, it's a book that's about Vietnam veterans coming back and it talks a lot about their trauma and how it impacted their physical bodies, the, the mental trauma that they went through. Um, and then it talks about other categories of where that happens. But I think the inspiration was Vietnam. And I think that's something we all have to really be mindful about. And I think it takes, for me, it's about slowing down and saying no to things. And it's easy to say when you start to get a foothold in your career where you've you've done an, a bunch of things and now you can kind of lean on those things to say, oh, look at these past achievements to like start moving forward in whatever direction you want to take your career. But like in my 20s, I was saying yes to every opportunity and then wondering why I had a headache all the time. <laughs> and I, I did this really cool, uh, there was this women's development uh, leadership program at Villanova that I just did. And um we did this thing called like a buckets exercise and like our instructor made us like talk about what are the buckets in your life and how full are they? Oh, are all the buckets full? Well, that's impossible. You can't have all these full buckets essentially. <laughs> and making, and she made us like break down like on an average week, like how many hours do you spend on this, that, and the other? And then realizing like, oh, am I prioritizing my time the way I really want to be prioritizing it? So yeah, for me, for me, my personal leadership plan that came out of that program was to say no to things and cut back my involvement with things outside of work to only one thing at a time. Because currently I have, I'm juggling uh, AFP, the Association of Fundraising Professionals. I'm doing a bunch of things with them. And then also um, a theater, a community theater group I'm a part of. I just got recruited to do a lot of stuff for their gala. I shouldn't have said yes, but you know, we'll get through it. It's going to be great. <laughs> For those who may not know, the, the Association of Fundraising Professionals is one of the only professional groups that exists for our field. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with Yeah, so AFP, um, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, is a global membership organization. So they do everything from like networking to professional development, education courses, uh, conferences, things like that. And they're what what makes them different than the other things that might be out there is there for everything fundraising, as opposed to, say, APRA, which is for prospect research, or CASE, which is for higher ed. I think there's a medical one, 
too. And so, or like the plan giving, we have a plan giving council in Philadelphia, like that too. Well, AFP can kind of be everything all in one. And yeah, so I'm on their board. I'm on their executive board or the executive committee of the board. I'm their co-vice president of external relations. So I so what it sounds like. And it's a really great organization that I got involved with because Robbie Healy, back when I took the fundraising class, was obviously she was very deeply involved and was like, if you're going to get involved, you should join this organization. And I'm a good student. So of course I did it. And I just, I did a few, I went to a few things and I joined like a smaller committee as a member. And then I, you know, got recruited to be on a bigger committee. And then I got recruited to chair their conference. And then I got asked to be on the board and to be on this committee. So it's a really great opportunity for me, I know, in terms of exercising leadership skills and management skills, because I have never had a job where I manage people yet. I'd like to at some point, but it just hasn't happened due to the jobs that I've pursued. And so my next step in my career is going to be to pursue some sort of management position. Don't know when, but it's giving me that, that talking point, I guess, but also I'm learning a lot and it's a lot of really great people who all care. It's nice because like, like you said, you came from smaller grassroots organizations. It's especially nice for that because a lot of times you may only be working with two to three other people. Whereas I'm on a team of 120 or 130 now, I think. And it's really cool because I can go in and there will be like a dozen other major gift officers who I can bounce ideas off of. Didn't have that at previous jobs. So AFP absolutely filled that need to be able to learn how to do it, to do things, get different ideas, get different feedback and and make some really great networking connections for future jobs and just friends. I just went out this weekend with two members of the board just to get brunch for fun. So highly recommend joining. It's It's, it's been very rewarding. What is the primary takeaway you hope our listeners will have after listening to this episode of Talking Good? Well, join AFP because I, I should shamelessly plug for them. I would say remember if you are a fundraiser and you're doing good, like you're saying in your podcast, remind yourself that you're doing good. If you're ever, I think in our culture, we definitely have a weirdness around talking about money and just get over it and realize like, this is how we're going to change things. Money can change a lot of things. Don't be afraid to lean on that. So Liz, what current projects are you working on or hope to work on and how can our listeners connect with you? I am currently the co-chair for this year's Leading Philanthropy Conference through AFP Greater Philadelphia, Southern New Jersey, Brandywine, which is Delaware, and Berks County. And then the Foundation for Delaware County just joined us. Uh, Delaware County is a county right outside of Philadelphia. So I'm co-chairing that. That's September 13th. So if you're in the area, come check us out. It's going to be great. Again, it's, it's just like AFP. It's a full day conference full of anything fundraising. We have all kinds of topics. And let's see, if you're you're also in Delaware County and you want to come to a fundraiser on August 26th to support a local theater, get a new sound system, you can come check that out (laughs) at playersclubofswathmore.com. But you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's, That's where I do all my business that's not related to my work. So happy to happy to take any direct messages. Well, thank you so much, Liz, for stopping by to talk some good with me today. Well, thank you for having me. This is I love talking about what we do. Well, everyone, that's it for this episode of Talking Good. If you enjoyed it as much as we did, be sure to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice and give us a five-star rating. I'm Britt Hotailing, and I'll see you next time.